This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. First Draft is now in its seventh year and recently lost its funding. So I'm turning to you, my listeners, and asking for your support to keep this podcast going. So far, nearly 250 authors have been featured on First Draft talking about their work and their craft. It takes time and money to produce this podcast, to purchase the software, host the audio, and create the show. At patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters, you can provide much-needed support for the show that makes a difference in keeping it on the air. I want to tell you I strongly believe that having these conversations is not just an insightful look into our literary landscape, but they are acts of empathy every time we dive into a writer's work, because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is what it means to be alive, here and now in the world we all share. I believe dialogue is what we often lack in many realms of our society, and I hope in some way this podcast is contributing to the conversation. So consider that your donation supports over three hours a month of deep conversation about craft and literature and what it means to reflect on our human experience. Please take a stake in these conversations by supporting their creation. There are various levels of support, and each one comes with extras like cuts that didn't make it into the show, writing tips, and even books. The first tier is just $6 a month. So please take a minute to go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. And please contribute to what we are creating together. I couldn't do it without you. And also please rate the show on iTunes and tell at least one friend to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest is Jennifer Dubois, author of the novels A Partial History of Lost Causes, Cartwheel, and The Spectators. She was named by the National Book Foundation as one of its five under 35 writers. She teaches at the MFA program at Texas State University. In her novel, The Spectators, Dubois takes on the AIDS crisis in New York in the 80s, talk show culture, and school shootings. The Spectators focuses on talk show host Matthew Miller, who is famous for bringing on guests who expose the bizarre and the shameful aspects of their lives. But before Miller hosted and facilitated this type of shocking television, he was a politician in New York with a promising career, and he was a champion for the underdog. His political life abruptly ended when it was revealed he had a secret gay lover, despite the fact he was married. The Spectators moves back and forth between perspectives from Matthew Miller's ex-lover Semi and his publicist Sel. The Spectators investigates made-for-TV culture, a predecessor for reality TV, the beginning of mass shootings in American schools, and how far the public will go to scrutinize their one-time legends. We began with Jennifer Dubois talking about the impetus for writing The Spectators. Actually, I think in the summer of 2012, I had just gotten married and my husband and I were um, on a road trip and I heard this radio episode. It was a This American Life episode about the surprising backstory of Jerry Springer, which I had known nothing about, the fact that he had been a really beloved politician in Cincinnati and that he'd been this progressive city councilman um, and then gone on to become this beloved mayor who apparently drew regular comparisons to you know, Kennedy in terms of his like charisma and in terms of his potential. At a certain point in his uh, early career, he was derailed briefly by a scandal where he um, paid for a prostitute with a check. 
apparently it was a bad idea, and then uh, had sort of went through this public shaming process, but then emerged sort of triumphant and continued to do work, substantive work as a public servant before then years later going on to become the Jerry Springer that we all know. So I was really just floored and fascinated by this trajectory. Um, it raised a lot of interesting and like pretty clearly, obviously novelistic questions for me. Of course, the question of like how someone transformed so profoundly across a lifetime was was one of those questions. But I it also sort of seemed to immediately present some interesting narrative possibilities because I thought, you know, as um, as shocking and surprising as it was for me, someone who as a child of, you know, growing up in the 90s, you know, consumed Jerry Springer um, in his you know trash TV uh, persona. You know, as surprising as it was for me to learn about this backstory, like how shocking would it have been to have known this man as this great uh, politician and this great gifted public servant and then watch him kind of go forward into into this um, this career. So I thought it would be so interesting to follow a character, something like that from the vantage point of two of two perspectives, one being um, a young woman who's his publicist in the 90s, who's very cynical about this person, but comes to a somewhat more nuanced and complex understanding. And the other character being this um, lover from the 60s and 70s who really idealized the, you know, Maddie M. Matthew Miller um, figure who's based on Jerry Springer and then has to go through this uh, process of uh, becoming really, really disillusioned. And so why was the 80s sort of for you the backdrop? Was that because that was the backdrop for Jerry Springer? Or was there something about the AIDS crisis that you wanted to also delve into? Yeah, so the I think the kernel, the kernel of the book really began, um, I think, with the, with the 90s. I think it really began with it being interested in, uh, you know, trash TV culture, which of course was you know, the ancestor of reality TV culture, which then gets into, you know, the sort of um, internet culture that we have today. But also I was interested in some of the like moral panics of the 90s and the tendency that we had then to try, which we still do to some extent, but especially then to try to find cultural causes for various social ills, like, you know, school shootings and such. So it sort of started with the 90s but and then sort of spidered backwards because, um, I knew that that was going to be the the decade in which this um, this man would be hosting this show, but I really wanted to explore the the deep backstory of this person through the point of view of of his um, his former lover. Um, and one thing that had interested me about the Jerry Springer story was with this little kind of almost comic episode of like the prostitute with the check. I thought, how would it wouldn't it be interesting if the narrator of this book was the person who had been involved in the scandal, but but that had actually been someone who really sincerely loved this man. And then and then I found myself, you know, kind of thinking about, well, who would that have been? And figuring, well, that would probably have been a, a gay relationship in the in the 60s and 70s, you know, something that would be considered that devastating to a career. So anyway, this is a long way of saying that um, the AIDS crisis in the 80s and all that, it 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 didn't so much it was that wasn't so much the genesis of the book at all. It was it was more that I realized I had created a gay character and begun his story in 1969, and that I was going to follow it through to 1993, and that what that meant was that he and all his friends were going to have to endure this calamity. Um, so it was really more kind of character up than like theme or topic down, if that makes sense. So when we first meet the main character, who we mostly know as Maddie M, his lover, semi 
is the point of view we see very in the very beginning and it switches back and forth between him and Sel, this woman that's his publicist. And Semi was his lover and he sort of grounds the reader by saying that, you know, he was Matthew Miller then, Counselor M. Miller Esquire to the courts, Matthias Milgram to his grandparents, Matthew to very, very few. So we're starting off sort of knowing and being grounded like, oh, this person has many personalities. And as we go through the book, we see him through Semi's eyes and through Sel's eyes. And it's interesting for politicians and TV personalities to have this because I felt like a lot of the book was asking the reader, who who is this person? Yeah, I mean, I think in a way he's a little bit of a Trojan horse because I think at the end of the day, the book really becomes more about Semi and Cell and their and their journeys and sort of the the ways in which their stories intersect with this with this man, and a lot of that is inflected by kind of the projections that they make onto him. I mean, I wouldn't say he's a blank slate character because I I really do feel like he's he's there and that he's he reveals his intentions sort of um, towards the end. But at the same time, he's really not the main character of the, of the book in some kind of deep way. He's kind of this cipher around which the main characters and the main protagonists kind of oscillate in some ways. But yeah, I think for the semi-character, it's his is kind of this deep retrospection, this man looking back on his youth from the vantage point of, of middle age, late middle age. It, for him, I think really kind of a story about about loss in a lot of ways, um, loss of his, of his, many of his friends and acquaintances, um, but also loss of sort of a certain youthful um, idealization, most in terms of romance and in terms of um, politics. And then I think for Cell, it's kind of a coming of age story because she, I think, has a deep affinity with Maddie Matthew um, in some respects, which is that you, you kind of get the sense from her that she's the sort of person that could be like a lot of different things if if different contexts presented themselves. And, um, you know, she's got this great capacity for self-reinvention. Um, and so she's kind of trying to figure out, like, if, I, if I'm a person who could kind of be a lot of different things, you know, what kind of person do I do I want to be and who who should I try to become? And that's uh, that's sort of her journey. So so I so I'm not sure the question of the book, like who it, like the, the central question is as much who is this man? Um, I think more the question is, you know, how does that question animate these two other characters stories? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I think kind of the center nucleus that I kept coming back to that that both these characters have to reckon with as well as other things that happen in the book that we can talk about is what is the essence of Maddie M's show? Is it the low ebb of society? Is it the pathology of our age? Is it entertainment? Is it a symptom? And that seems like you could, I mean, it's really fun to think about that because it's really hard to find an answer and and even if you think you know what the show is do you know what his intentions are yeah that's the piece of it that was really interesting to me was 
the idea of a character who could could maybe somehow have kind of like someone who used to be this progressive politician, this sort of champion of the marginalized and downtrodden, you know, could that person actually conceive of a show like the Jerry Springer show as somehow being on the side of its guests and somehow, you know, being actually some sort of form of, of advocacy. You know, I, I don't know if that's really how like Jerry Springer conceives of his show, but there, there are ways that he talks about it where you sense a certain like ruefulness and a certain sense that, you know, that his heart is kind of, uh, you know, not quite where, where it may seem to be. And so I thought that that was, that was sort of an interesting aspect too, of like, there's what you see when you look at the show, then there's, it also gets into questions of, of satire, because I think, um, you know, Springer show was like such a, it was such an over the top version of a kind of show that existed um, pretty commonly in the, in the 90s. You know, there were a lot of shows like the Springer show, but that was the one that was kind of the most over the top. And in a lot of ways, it was kind of, um, you could sort of scan it as a parody of that kind of show. So yeah, I was really interested in, in that, the question of this guy's intentions of, of what this thing um, is to him versus, versus how it scans to the world and what people do with that, which is, uh, um, of course, something completely out of his hands and a very different matter. Did you watch a lot of daytime TV as research? You know, interestingly, I didn't. Um, I think partly because the Jerry Springer show, like, you know, it would, I think it would have been almost too tempting to to try to, like, lift directly the, um, you know, the, like, ridiculous, like, episode titles and the, the ridiculous, like, scenarios from the show. Like, I really felt like I needed to make up my own, which was, which was also actually a great deal of fun to come up with, like, the different... Um, you know, like I married my goat or whatever different um, episodes. I didn't watch much of it because I tend to, you know, I like to lift broad stroke ideas and trajectories from life. But then once I realize I'm going to do that, I like to kind of get as far away as possible from the source material just to because I really do want to kind of enter an imaginative um, fictional space. So so I didn't actually watch for any Jerry Springer actually since I started writing the book. So at the at least at the plot line heart of this, as Semi and Cell are telling their stories, there's a shooting, a, a school shooting in Ohio. And you get the sense reading it that it's one of the first yeah. that that we see as a society because of the time that it takes place. And so the show is faced with this question, if they're reflecting some of the stranger things going on in society what is what is their role in potentially covering this? But then it goes deeper because there's a critic who basically says that shows like this could be the reason for that. This is this woman named Suzanne Bryanson. And then we learn that the kids who were shooting, they were doing a skit in their school of the show. So it just becomes so linked to this terrible tragedy. There's a lot of ways in which I think some of the themes of the book resonate pretty intently with things, theme, very modern and contemporary concerns. But there are ways in which it does seem, you know, pretty uniquely linked to the 90s. And as you mentioned, the, the sense you get that this is one of the kind of first, um, you know, it was, it was in some ways, you know, very much uh, inspired by the, the Columbine shooting. It's set a couple of years earlier. And it's um, set in the summer of 1993, and it's this school shooting is allowed to dominate an entire news summer, essentially, which is something that wouldn't happen today. So there's a lot of ways in which it's kind of, um, you know, it's very 90s specific. It's it's meant to be kind of one of the first 
school shootings and the country is still kind of, um, you know, really shocked by these episodes, whereas now, of course, they're they're pretty um, they're pretty commonplace, and we're not we're certainly not surprised anymore when they happen. Um, so yeah, this this gets into these kinds of um, cultural questions that I was interested in. You know, I was remembering with the Columbine shooting, the conversations surrounding like Marilyn Manson, um, all of that, the idea that there had been um, somehow. Uh, you know, some kind of corrosive cultural force that was behind this this thing. Um, so I was interested in seeing if I could, you know, t- take a take a shooting like that and possibly map it onto a show like the Jerry Springer Show. But then, as you say, kind of make the link a little bit more more direct. Where in the in the book, the kids are um, they're in, involved in a uh, in a, um, a, a like a media studies class skit essentially um and there's some question as to whether one of the two shooters even like knows that it's that it's real and so it it sort of intersects with um those questions about about reality and performance and artifice and and violence on tv um which which are sort of at the core of the questions about the maddie m show i think too with the shooting it was so clear that they were looking for someone to blame and, and that it's easy. It was easy, especially for this woman, Suzanne Bryanson to just blame this one thing. And it just kind of made me think about how in the beginning, when we saw these kind of school shootings, that it was almost easier to sort of try to figure out a reason you wanted to point finger and it feels so much more complex now. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there was kind of this, desire to identify some kind of cultural bug that could be worked out. And, you know, I, I really didn't want the book to be politically didactic in any way, but at the same time, like it is exploring the ways in which I think these conversations, you know, that there's in some quarters an incentive to make that conversation be about anything but guns. Right. And so I think that, um, that's, that's one aspect too, that, that there's a, there's a strain of sort of searching, uh, for, you know, searching for answers anywhere, but the most kind of obvious place maybe. Um, but I, yeah, I think, I think now there seems to be less of a, you know, and I don't know if it's just the pace of these things, like now that they're so, they're so frequent, um, it doesn't seem like there's as much time or cultural bandwidth to like do a lot of sort of a deep dive into, you know, every single shooter's like cultural diet or, uh, of course, you know, when you have people that have been like radicalized politically in various ways, that's not, that's not the case. But, um, but in general, I think it seems like we're less likely to be having that conversation about, you know, what, um, what like relatively benign form of entertainment did this person consume? Oh, let's, let's turn to that as the, as the answer for this problem. Yeah. And I think that's almost mirrored in some questions that Semi asks. So his story, you know, it is a true love story. He says that Matthew was his one and only love. And he had a group of friends in New York in the 80s that he hung out with that weren't that positive about his relationship with Matthew. They were very cynical. Semi was actually on Matthew's payroll when he was um, running for office and when he was serving in the state house. And, you know, one of the things that Semi is is consumed with asking is where did sort of the AIDS crisis begin? He has a line in there about scouring our past to find parts, the points of entry. 
and I think he's looking for AIDS. And it seems like it's kind of similar in some ways to, to the gun thing. It's like wanting to find that one answer for something that's so complex. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about writing this storyline of the struggles of that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, to your point, that's a really interesting parallel. Like I had not... I had not thought about it quite in those terms that there's that there is sort of in both through lines this, you know, a certain amount of sort of searching for um, the key counterfactual. Like if this if if this one thing had gone differently, then what would have happened? Um, and I think that that is something that is definitely very true in the semi storyline, because, um, you know, there's a lot about the, uh, you know, the, the governmental failures that, um, and sort of just callousness, um, at the federal level, but also at the municipal level that, um, that made things worse or that, you know, didn't contribute to mitigating AIDS in any way for many, many years, obviously. And so I think that that's, that's one part of sort of the wistfulness of his storyline is this almost fantasy that maybe, if Matthew Miller had been the mayor of New York, that this would have like, in, in, you know, that they would have closed the bathhouses sooner. And maybe that would have somehow, to some degree, you know, derailed this, this thing. Writing those sections was, was really interesting and really difficult. One technique or like one craft strategy that I was really interested in exploring in this book was kind of the movement between the first person singular and the first person collective. So when we meet semi um, it's actually kind of this choral first person we and you sort of follow him and his friends through these um, early really like fun lively hedonistic years of um, early gay liberation days in in New York in the early 70s and then um, you have a semi break off into the first person singular when he begins this relationship with Matthew Miller who's this closeted man kind of this he's progressive but he's kind of a mainstream politician kind of an incrementalist you know reformer not not a political radical in the same way as many of semi's friends um and the the singular is meant to to somewhat kind of uh, echo his pulling away from that friend group and then it goes back into the collective first person the we when um when the aids crisis hits and he's sort of subsumed into this collective identity again. And and then it emerges as the first person once more when many of his friends and acquaintances have um, have died and he's kind of stuck now forever in that solitary um, eye. So that was something that I think helped to kind of shape um, the sort of emotional scaffolding of, of this storyline to some degree. I also would say that I, I owe so much to the book um, and the band played on because I was, I was really interested in the incredibly early days of, of AIDS, like before it even had a name um, and the sort of myths that were told about it and the rumors that were told about it, like when it was this kind of monstrous um, thing that no one could even kind of quite catch sight of. And people were, and there was just a lot of cultural folklore about you know, what it was in the absence of any, you know, real medical information at that point, and certainly any kind of, you know, many years from any kind of government acknowledgement of it. Um, and so that was something too, that I found lent itself well to that first person collective, because you, you kind of have all these jostling and competing theories and, and people, you know, saying, you know, um, I heard it was this and other people saying, you know, I heard it was that. And hopefully that creates some of that sense of sort of destabilization in the reader. 
So as as the story progresses and we see Maddie M under more fire, we discover that one of the shooters actually had sort of a relationship with him in that he wrote him a letter. I'm sure that Maddie M got a lot of fan letters and that he Maddie M wrote back to him and that became a source of problems for Cell, the the publicist, and for the show. And at some points, you know, it, it, it harkened back to his compassion and his his early political career. But I'm just wondering if you could talk about this element. Yeah, so actually this this letter, and you never see the letter, you, what you see eventually is you eventually see the letter that um, the, the, the student wrote to Maddie M. Um, and it's probably worth saying that it's, it's the student who, um, who were, were not sure if he actually was, you know, fully aware of what he was doing in this, um, school shooting or not. And it's, um, we talked about kind of the gap between reality and intention with, um, with the show and, and with, um, Matthew Miller. And I think the, the letter from the student is, um, it was very dear to me, actually. It was probably one of my favorite parts of the whole book to write, and it kind of meant the most to me in, in some ways because um, it is kind of this this moment of um, not only having a character who's been an offstage character kind of explain their intentions, but also having this person like offer up a reading of the Maddie M show that's actually like kind of a radically compassionate reading where he where the way that he um, understands this this show like he understands Maddie M to be actually completely allied with the guests and that and he understands that the antagonists of the show are actually the audience members and that that's where Maddie M's contempt um, is, is is toward the audience and not towards his um, his guests and so it's um, it's a chance to sort of like after you've read you know, many, many, many pages of um, like indictment of the show and you've sort of seen it in like a, a variety of different lights to have um, a character kind of come in and offer up just like another reading of it that's completely, completely different. And it's not in any way meant to be decisive. It's just meant to sort of reveal that, you know, there's a lot of different ways um, for a, a person to to read something um, as complicated as this as the show. And it might not be um, exactly what you what you expect. Um, so. Yeah, you know, that was that was a part of the book that was really um, kind of dear to my heart in a lot of ways. I think it it also harkens to this notion that I think your book is also both exposing and and asking of the characters and the readers are of of who you are in front of and behind the camera that we you know, when you go interior into Semi's, Semi's life because you're you're writing in first person, you see who he is and then you can kind of see the outer world. And the same thing we can see with Maddie. And I'm wondering if this was a question that you were thinking a lot about, about sort of public and private faces and, and how they might intertwine or not. Yeah, I was interested in that question of performance. Um and the sort of public persona versus the private self. Um, and I think that, you know, with the Matthew, Maddie character, uh, you know, there's a certain kind of tragic quality to him that sort of follows him throughout his career. 
like a schism between that public and that personal self, although the, the sort of nature of the schism differs, you know, at the beginning of the book, you have him as this closeted gay man who's trying to be this, you know, progressive politician. He's trying to run for mayor of New York city. Um, and he's, you know, his private experience, his private self is something that partially, um, animates his his political um, self to, to a certain degree, but it's also ultimately the thing that kind of proves to be his undoing because once this is revealed, he, he kind of has to like leave um, his political ambitions behind essentially. And then, you know, it's like, I don't, it's like in, in a way I don't want to venture too much of my own analysis about who this character is in the later half of the book because I think it's one of those things where it's like I get to have my own sort of private feeling about him and then the readers do too. But I guess to to me, he's kind of this tragic figure later in the book where he um, it's it's he's kind of gone astray. He's someone who could have been this really great man, but was felled through a combination of factors, some of which were really, really not his fault. Ben. But then there's no question that he's also complicit to a certain degree in the sort of direction that his show like ultimately ultimately takes. But I see him as someone who's kind of still clinging to those early ideals and has kind of become is no longer quite capable of seeing that the life he's living now is not actually enacting those ideals, if that makes sense. Um, and that it's, and that it's kind of too late for him to, to go back to being the person that he was before. Although, although towards the latter half of the book, he, he does make an attempt, sort of an ill start attempt to, um, to kind of reclaim that person that he, that he was before. So, so yeah, I was, I was interested in that sort of gap between the public and the, and the private persona I guess, and the ways in which that gap can create, you know, can be both a cause and a, and a consequence in some ways uh, for, for characters with tragic downfalls. Did you have anything that you thought was true or had certain assumptions when you started writing this? And did you change how you thought at all at the end? Or did you learn something about uh, along the way, maybe about writing or these topics or just wondering if writing this changed you in some way. I never go into a project thinking that I have an answer about anything. You know, the, the way that I know that I've found a novel idea is when I find myself really like genuinely vexed by a question. Like when I, when I have a question and I'm, and I really, really don't know the answer. So with my second book cartwheel, I was thinking about, you know, how is it that people of goodwill who seem intelligent, like look at the exact same thing and come to radically different conclusions. And I went into the, that book, like really not knowing the answer to that. And it, and it's not that you find an answer over the course of writing. You just kind of sit with the question and kind of contemplate the question. So, um, similarly, I, I wouldn't say there were a lot of like assumptions that got upended in the course of writing this book, because I don't think I lead with assumptions. I really do kind of lead with, um, lead with the questions and then they just become kind of ever more um, vexing and complicated as you go along. Um, but I would say, you know, yeah, the book, the book, you know, it, it's, yeah, the book definitely changed me writing it um, in a lot of ways. I mean, it was a very humbling experience. I mean, I think humbling is a gross word. People overuse that word, but it, but it was like a humbling experience in a lot of ways, not just artistically because it was, it was very hard to, to write this book just because of some of the structural choices I'd made that then I had to sort of execute. Um, but also just the, the emotional heft of it. I mean, the, the sort of enormity of its themes and the enormity of the tragedies at the center of it. Um, all of that to sit with that for so long for five years was, um, 
was a pretty, you know, profound experience. And at the end of the day, you can only just, you know, hope that you've, um, I think Nam Lee talks about the distinction between getting it right versus doing it justice in fiction. I really like that distinction um, because you, you kind of can't even hope to have gotten it right. You can only hope that maybe you did it some justice. And so um, that's, that's sort of what, what I'm left with, but, um, but, but yeah, just, just because of the length of time it took to write and sort of its scope and its subject matter, it was definitely, I think the most like soul altering experience I've had writing a book for sure. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So I'm going to read a, a passage from Pale Fire by Vladimir Bakov, and then I'll, I'll sort of explain what, I, what I'm struck by in this. So this is Charles Kinboat talking. Oh, there were many such incidents. In a skit performed by a group of drama students, I was pictured as a pompous woman hater with a German accent, constantly quoting Hausman and nibbling raw carrots, and a week before Shade's death, a certain ferocious lady at whose club I had refused to speak on the subject of the Halley Valley, as she put it, confusing Odin's Hall with the title of a Finnish epic, said to me in the middle of a grocery store, you are a remarkably disagreeable person. I fail to see how John and Sybil can stand you. And exasperated by my polite smile, she added, what's more, you are insane. But let me not pursue the tabulation of nonsense. Whatever was thought, whatever was said, I had my full reward in John's friendship. This friendship was the more precious for its tenderness being intentionally concealed, especially when we were not alone, by that gruffness which stems from what can be termed the dignity of the heart. His whole being constituted a mask. Um, so Pale Fire is one of my very, very favorite books. Actually, it's probably my favorite book of all time. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things I just like about this section so much, I mean, I think that um, there are a couple of things. Like one is, I, I personally kind of am squeamish about the term unreliable narrator just because I think we're all unreliable narrators and so it's sort of a false binary to designate some you know narrators as being self-serving and uh you know selective in their pre presentation of information that said obviously Charles Kinboat of Pale Fire is one of the one of the more unreliable narrators um in literature and I, I think this section is so funny like just that little aside where this woman in the grocery store says to this guy what's more, you are insane. Um, you know, it's sort of a throwaway line very early in the book. And, uh, you know, as the, the question of this narrator's, you know, sanity and uh, the, the veracity of what he's reporting, you know, becomes more and more urgent as the book goes on. It's, uh, it's just one of those little kind of throwaway details that you kind of come back to and realize that, um, you know, Nabokov gave, gave this, uh, this sort of random woman um, this really important line. And of course, it's just, you know, classically hilarious, you know, a pompous woman hater with a German accent, quoting Hausman and nibbling raw carrots and let me not pursue the tabulation of nonsense. It's a great example of the wonderful, um, you know, hilarious, uh, self-serving first person voice that I that I really love in this book. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? So this is uh, the beginning, just the beginning of the section of um, the beginning section of chapter two of uh, semi section set in 1969. <clears throat> and I'll, I'll read it and then I'll talk a little bit about uh, what was difficult. So 1969. By the spring of 1969, we'd moved into a walk up on 15th Street and were mostly done with the taking and renouncing of each other as lovers. Our group back then was sometimes five, often six, though never less than four. There were substitutes and swings, ex-roommates who came from California, 
theater aspirants pretending not to be alcoholics, lovers who joined for a night or a season, and we all provided our share of extras. But it was Brookie who cast the principals, finding the ones who'd really matter, then Pied Pipering them back to the apartment. This is how we acquired Polly one Memorial Day as he was being arrested on wrist beach for exposing his navel. He began singing, sit down, you're rocking the boat, while the cop issued him a ticket. He had a commanding and classically trained tenor, and we turned to see where it was coming from. We were surprised to find a delicate, curly-haired boy with elfin features that, we learned later, turned somewhat troll-like in distress. Midnight Confessions had been playing on someone's radio. They turned it off. Polly sang even more spiritedly then, and a couple of castrati joined in, and the people all said, beware, beware. In that moment, Polly seemed to all of us a leading man, though he would turn out to stay a chorus boy forever. So there were a couple things about this section that <clears throat> came to mind when I was think remembering uh, with chagrin, you know, just how difficult it was to restructure and revise this book. Um, one of the major challenges was the collective first person that I had talked about earlier, this we voice. A lot of the early writing of these these guys was um, was done in, in modal writing, meaning kind of a summaries of repeated action, which give you a sense of kind of the thickness of time and give you a sense of kind of a, a kaleidoscopic look at what their routine was like and what their usual lives were like. But one of the biggest challenges was figuring out when and how to kind of zoom in from that collective modal writing into, into scene. So here where you kind of start with this uh, bit of broad strokes description about kind of their general social life. And then you sort of zoom into this moment where they, they meet Polly um, you know, it may not look that impressive on the page, but it was something that was really, really hard to to sort of figure out exactly how to balance those two things. And then the other piece, of course, is uh, the fact that you do have that collective uh, first person. So you don't have an I in that section at, at all. And so you're you're trying to at least I'm trying to kind of introduce some of the actual like personal subjective assessments of this first person narrator semi um, without really revealing him as a narrator yet. So even the descriptions about, you know, Polly as being this, um, you know, these elfin features that turn somewhat troll-like in distress, you know, that's, um, that's Semi's, you know, first person subjective assessment, but it's um, sort of being embedded in this, uh, in this first person collective as though it's, you know, some sort of universal truth about this person. And then the other, the third thing, of course, is that you have this sense of retrospection where, you know, at the end, you know, at that moment, Polly seemed to all of us a leading man, though he would turn out to stay a chorus boy forever. You know, that's um, that's that retrospective voice coming in, that, the person who's looking back over the course of 30 years and knows that this kid, you know, never becomes a star because he dies at 27 or whatever it is. Um, all of that was just like a lot to try to, you know, kind of get into small sections. And it's um, it's definitely indicative of a lot of the challenges I had writing the first sections especially of the book but it's also um something i'm 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 proud of because i think it all of it came a long way from early early flailing drafts so where do you write so i have this really lovely study now we've moved into this new house and i had never had a study before and i set it up all nicely with this um this really cute little desk and i never write there i the only place that i write is like on the side of my stained ikea couch in the living room while twisted sideways in a terrible position, even though I have this wonderful desk. So I but I have hopes for for changing my ways soon. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? 
I've actually really enjoyed, I haven't been doing it as much lately, but in the past, I was really enjoying learning languages. I, I'm, I'm a person who I don't actually have any other like skills or hobbies besides language and words. So the, the only thing that I can do to kind of get away from um, written English is to sort of study like other languages. So I had been, um, I had been studying Russian for a while and I really had been in, enjoying that. That really gives you um, talk about like a humbling experience, like just the number of uh, cases alone kind of give you a dizzying sense that we as English speakers are just living in like a very crude and very limited, you know, version of what language um, can be. And what one thing I really have loved about studying Russian is that it's so hard that you can't you can't have a channel in your brain that's on um, to anything else while you're studying it. So it's not, you know, it's like I think like a lot of people, I sort of have you know constant low grade anxiety all the time where I'm like half thinking about something else all the time. But when I study Russian, it's like actually impossible to to do that. So it's kind of meditative in that way. So that's something I've I've enjoyed as a as a hobby. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So I have a great group of readers from um, my graduate school and you know we all kind of you know share novel drafts as they're as they're ready throughout the years. So um, so I have a couple readers from from there who I I think probably two or three who I've shown every draft of everything I've written to. And then I also recently joined a, a writing group here in Austin of, of some women um, writers, all of whom are very smart and super supportive and lovely. So um, that's been that's been nice to have sort of a uh, in person writing group community in the place that I that I live. And I recently showed them a draft of my new book, which is a a uh, much shorter book. I sort of promised myself that after the spectators that the next thing would be like a, you know, 40,000 word, you know, one point of view linear timeline. And it was a real treat to write that and then uh, get to get to show it to these to these women. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, I one thing I try a piece of advice that I try to give my student that I give my students and that I try to I try to take myself is this, this idea that I think that, you know, as artists, we kind of need to be very, we need to be very attentive to our inner, our inner compass. And I think that one of the great tasks of learning to take criticism is figuring out, you know, how to sort through the criticism that's useful to you from the criticism that's, that's not. And that's a really daunting task. Um, but I think that for, for me, at least, you know, there's a distinction between criticism you get and you might feel that sense of like, oh, God, you're right. I have to do that. I don't want to do that. I'm so sorry you said that. But ugh, you're right. Versus that sense of just total like estrangement and complete like if someone gives you a piece of criticism or a piece of feedback and you just and it doesn't it doesn't even hit you because you're, you're just so it just feels so estranged from what you're trying to do. Um, so I just try to listen very carefully to um to that, you know, to that inner feeling, because especially at this stage of your career, you, you do get a, a lot of criticism from a lot of corners and you're, you know, you're, there's no way you're going to be ex able to execute all of it. Um, so, so I do try to sort of like take everything in and like sit with everything and really consider everything. And then also let my sort of gut reaction um, be the sort of ultimate arbiter of what I decide to act on and what I don't. And what is your favorite word? I find myself using the word nebulous an awful lot. <laughs> I, I use it a lot in um, in class, and then I think it's uh, I use it so much that it's kind of like a, it's kind of a tick. And when I talk to the students about like idiolect versus dialect and people's you know sort of uh, 
the, the particular kind of speech patterns that an individual has. That's, that's an example I use because I, I, tend to, I tend to overuse it. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Jennifer Dubois, author of the novel, The Spectators. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft Radio Show and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. Please take a moment to support First Draft and contribute to keeping the program alive at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. There are plenty of extras for becoming a member, and your donations help to keep the dialogue going. I know you might be listening in your car or when you're on the run, but please consider coming back to your computer at some point and donating to First Draft. That's patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting First Draft. I'm Mitzi Rapkin.